Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of History, Books, and Wine. I'm your host this week, Madeline Martin, a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. Today, I'll be talking about beer. Hooray, beer! And you'll even learn a little bit of German, at least how to order a beer in German. Wunderbar! I love a beer from time to time, especially with like a nice slice of pizza or some burger and fries, especially if it's a bacon cheeseburger with crispy bacon on top and gooey melted cheese. French fries though are my favorite. that are crispy on the outside, mushy on the inside, and crusted with a nice little salt. So my beer today is Yingling, which actually happens to be one of my favorite beers, and so that's why I chose it. I was going to try and get something really fancy or some kind of crazy name, but it seems like a lot of the crazy names are IPAs and I really don't love hops too terribly much and so I went with my tried and true classic a good old-fashioned yingling. From the website yingling states famous for its rich amber color and medium bodied flavor with roasted caramel malt for a subtle sweetness and a combination of cluster and cascade hops. This true original delivers a well-balanced taste with very distinct character. Born from a historic recipe that was resurrected in 1987, huh, I'm older than that resurrected recipe, Yingling traditional lager is a very true classic. And I agree, it's delicious. So I spent 12 years in Germany. I'm an army brat, and so I was there for three different tours. And so I know a little bit of German, not a lot. Ich sprechen Sie kleine Deutsch. So if you want to learn how to order a beer in Germany, all you say is, Ein Bier bitte, and you will get a beer. Of course, and you have to pay for it. And then you say, Danke, saying thank you. So I'm going to change things up a little bit. Instead of drinking wine and you hear us pouring the glass of wine, you're going to hear something a little bit different this episode. I also have this really super cute handy dandy bottle opener that I almost never get to use, but it's shaped like a high heel and it's super cute. So I'm going to use that to open up my bottle of beer. And now to pour it. That is a nice big tall glass of yingling with a lot of head on it because I don't pour beer very often. So once this calms down a little bit, I am going to go on ahead and drink it. That is very good. The first thing that I want to discuss is water versus beer. A lot of times people said that the water back in the medieval days was so horrible that people didn't want to drink it because that's where the contagion and everything came from. Well, that's actually really not true. People did drink water regularly. In fact, they drink it a lot because it was free and ale and beer cost money. Also, contaminated water is more of a modern day idea. A lot of times they thought that contagion came from bad smells in the medieval era. If you listen to my episode that I did on health in the medieval days, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, water can cause problems. However, they didn't really believe that that was necessarily the case. Now, water didn't always look clear, and so you did have good clear water that did come at quite a premium. In fact, they did have a lot of pipes that would go up into noble homes that would help to deliver water, and a lot of town central areas had a water pump that they could get clean water from as well. There was even a job in cities to carry water. They were called 
the cobs, that's C-O-B-S, and they were water carriers, and they were paid by the bucket for the water that they carted. By the 1600s, there were over 4,000 cobs in London. First of all, we're going to talk about ale versus beer. Initially, there was ale. Ale is older than beer. Beer didn't come around until the 9th century, and ale, technically, they estimate has been around since the last 13,000 years, which blows my mind to even think that it's been around for that long. Ale is made with malted barley and water. It does not have hops in it, and it's usually only good for a couple of days. A lot of times it's used as a nutrient as much as a refreshment, or at least back then it was, as it has a lot of the same ingredients as bread does. In the medieval era, this actually was sort of a thick, nutritious soup beverage. So it was kind of almost like a healthy smoothie beer bread thing. But men, women, and children drank it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it was healthy enough to be consumed by the whole family. Now, beer, like I said, didn't come around until the 9th century when the introduction of hops was added to it. So the thing about hops is that it did give it a much more distinct flavor. It's a natural preservative. So it helped to preserve the beer instead of like with the ale, just a couple of days, it prolonged it to be a couple of weeks. Beer was primarily used more for just drinking and good old old-fashioned alcohol content rather than ale that was also used for nutrients. Brewers either made ale or they made beer, but they were not allowed to make both. And as time went on, you'll actually see a difference in the ale and the beer depending on how recipes have changed over time. For example, I know with ale initially it had changed from the 1300s to around the 1700s and this was due to wort, which is the sugar and protein liquid component that was actually not boiled prior to fermentation. I've learned a lot about beer doing this episode, (laughs) a lot more than I ever thought that I would and I'm going to drink to that. I seriously do love Yingling. You know, the interesting thing too is that beer enthusiasts recommend drinking beer at room temperature to get the maximum flavor from the beer. However, I personally love a nice cold beer. (laughs) I think that's the best way for it to be served. Beer is actually really not that difficult to make. Basically anything that can be fermented. It can be fruit or it can be flowers. Nearly every fruit or flower in the world at some point in time was attempted to be fermented into alcohol of some kind. (laughs) With grains, they're really easy to ferment because they go with the yeast in the air. That's what one website said. I'm not a huge expert on this, but that's what they said. Basically, once you start to ferment the grains, then the yeast comes in and it naturally creates your ale. So like I said before, this was initially believed to be at least 13,000 years old. And initially it was like a thick cereal. Like if you'd imagine a lovely oatmeal, a lovely ale flavored oatmeal. And this actually was used for ritualistic purposes or so they suspect. They had additional chemical tests on pottery that was done from 7,000 years ago that reveal remnants of fermented grains within it. So we know that beer was definitely for sure around 7,000 years ago. Additionally, there was a 6,000-year-old tablet that shows images of a communal bowl with people with reed-like straws drinking this gruel-like substance from these reed straws. And the reason why they would do the reed straws was because they wanted to avoid, apparently there were some bitter fermented bits at the bottom that they were trying to avoid gross. I just can't even can't even imagine trying to drink my beer through a straw and having it be really like thick and gelatinous as I'm trying to drink it. It just really doesn't sound very refreshing. Charlemagne was the Holy Roman Emperor from the 8th century and he found beer to be so incredibly important that it was rumored that he trained with brewers to know as much about beer as he did. Another interesting one too were Vikings. There was a Viking ale reproduction that was done not too long ago and it resulted in a very dark malty sweet drink. They actually did strain 
pushing out the liquid before it was consumed. So it probably would be more like a beer like we know it now or like an ale rather than it actually being like thick cereal. And also it was very, very sweet. I know I'd mentioned that it was sweet earlier, but it really stands to be mentioned that it was sweet by even today's standards. I would imagine for them, it was like crazy sweet. I almost wonder if it would be like an alcoholic soda or something of today. Anyways, they loved it. Beer was used for many things. You could use beer for barter, for trade, for paying your tithes, paying your taxes, and even paying your employees. 5,000 years ago in Uruk, which is an ancient city in summer, which is now Iraq, people were paid with ale. And also people who were working to build the pyramids were giving four to five liters, which is 1.3 gallons or so a day of ale for sustenance and energy. And we all know that the beer definitely was different back then because you know that if people are working out in the sun and you give them 1.3 gallons of beer, they're not going to be working very long. They're going to be sitting in the shade, talking about what they're going to be doing that weekend and probably taking naps, or at least I know that's exactly what I would be doing. Another thing that beer and ale ended up being used for was for profit and for funding, because of course there can always be something exploited from that. The first national tax on beer occurred in England in order to help fund the Crusades. The biggest people who did brewing were the monks and the monasteries. The monks took over brewing once the Roman Empire fell, and initially they started brewing to be hospitable to travelers by providing rest and refreshment. Like I said, one thing to keep in mind is that ale very much was like bread. The ingredients were very, very similar, and so it had a lot of the same nutrients. And so this was a great way for them to not have to worry about supplies. They could make their own ale and be able to feed and care for all of the people who stopped by, all the weary travelers. They continued to be the official experts, not just in ale, but also in beer, because like I said, the hops were incorporated into the drink to make beer in the 9th century. They continued to be the experts until the 12th century. In fact, they were the only place that you could actually get beer and ale. And boy, did they keep their secrets close. They weren't telling anybody. Not only did they make beer and ale, they also made wine and they tended some of the best vineyards in all of England. In the south, where the climate was a little bit warmer, the vineyards grew really, really well. And so they were able to tend those and do wine. However, in the northern area, where it was a little bit more difficult to grow those vineyards, they would grow hops. Hops are a much hardier plant than grapevines. And so the people in the north did more of the beer and the people in the south did more of the wine. One of the things that I found fascinating when I was doing my research is that women a lot of times were the ones who were in charge of brewing. Back in Mesopotamia and Ebla, Syria, they used to use women and priestesses to brew all the ale. In fact, they were called brewers then. So calling people brewers now is kicking it pretty old school, like Mesopotamia old school. That's pretty cool. Not only were women brewers in Mesopotamia and Ebla, but women were also brewers in the 13th century. It was said that that was one of the very few professions that women could actually have, aside from, you know, of course, the age-old profession that we won't go into. But yeah, women could actually be brewers. And I thought that was pretty interesting because in all the research that I've done over the years about women's professions, not really any of them ever mentioned women being brewers. So that's pretty cool. So in addition to the monks, women, a lot of times they were called alewives or the ones who are brewing the ale and the beer. Again, you couldn't brew both ale and beer. Usually you would do one or the other. I think most of the time they ended up going with beer because that had a lot more alcohol content and was a lot more 
more fun. Women generally made two different strengths of beer, and monks made three strengths of beer. And the strength of the beer was noted with X's, just like those little cartoon jugs that, I don't know if you guys remember seeing this. I remember when I was little and I would watch cartoons and you'd see like the little drunk cartoon character walking across the screen and he's got the little finger jug and it's got like an X on it. Well, if it had three X's, that stuff was pretty strong. If it only had one X, he probably was doing all right. (laughs) Which also is kind of funny to think about the fact that we watched cartoons with drunk characters because I really don't know that they have drunk characters in our kids' cartoons today. But the stronger beers had really fun names that enticed people to buy them, which is a lot like today. So funny how history repeats itself. So we had names like Mad Dog and Dagger Ale, and I was thinking it would be really great if they had one that was called Giant's Milk. Hashtag Game of Thrones comment. I had to get it in there somewhere. During the reign of Elizabeth I, there was a beer called Double Double Beer. It was actually not pronounced double with a U in it. The U was completely missing. It was D-O-B-L-E. Double Double Beer, and it was apparently really, really strong, and it led to a lot of drunken, disorderly behavior, and Elizabeth I hated it it because of all of the trouble that it caused. So where does one go to get ale and beer and wine? Inns sold both as refreshment for travelers since they had people coming from all over into their establishment. They wanted to make sure that they could accommodate everyone. Taverns actually were places where middle-class people went, and so they could get ale, beer, and wine there. However, alehouses generally sold beer, and they liked to sell the strong beer. Maybe like Double Double or Mad Dog or Giant's Milk. <laughs> there was generally one establishment for every 200 people, and they were oftentimes called nurseries for naughtiness because they were filled with the worst of the worst people. There was gambling, there was prostitution, there was theft, there was bear baiting, there was cockfighting. It was pretty much a really awful place to go to, but it was a place to get a cheap beer and, hey, have a good time depending on what you were planning on doing. But with drinking and fun, there's always a party pooper in there. In the 11th century, Simon Seth from Constantinople wrote that excessive drinking could cause inflammation of the liver. In fact, people of that time period drank a lot. (laughs) When you compare what people drink now to what people drank then, it was excessive. And the thing is, a lot of times people never even thought of it as being excessive because that's just what they did. I guess when you didn't have some Surgeon General warning labels on everything, it's like, oh, there's no warning telling me not to drink this. I guess I'm fine. So maybe we should say thank you to the Surgeon Generals. Some of the punishments that came about from drinking too much If somebody got drunk and killed somebody, it was technically a felony and it would be a hanging offense. So somebody would die because of that. Basically, the mindset was, yeah, you were drunk and you didn't know what you were doing, but you were the one who got drunk in the first place. So when you think about it, it pretty much makes sense. Thomas Woolsey, the future Lord Chancellor for Henry VIII, was once in trouble for drunkenness when he was younger and the sheriff who punished him, he then arrested and kept in prison for six years. But don't worry, Thomas Woolsey totally got his. Later on, he got accused of treason and then he ended up dying en route to his trial due to illness. And before he died, he said, I see the matter against me how it is framed, but if I had served God as diligently as I have done the king, he would not have given me over and my gray hairs. Interesting. Alcohol consumption increased after the Black Death. What a big surprise. When you have like 50% of the population around you that's dropping dead, generally including most of your family and friends, I think that's a great reason to drink. However, they didn't just do it because of depression. They also did it because they thought that it would help to protect them from getting sick. It was not uncommon for people to drink two gallons of beer at this point. (laughs) 
I mean, I don't even know. Like, you might just think that people have the plague, but they could just be dead drunk. I don't know. <laughs> That's a lot of beer to drink in one day, every day. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to go on ahead and drink to that. During the Renaissance, which is around the 1300 to 1600 time frame, people started to be a lot more offended by drunkenness. And it was essentially a sin, which is kind of funny because the monks were initially the ones who made the beer in the first place. And it's just this sort of endless loop. I just think it's funny. But they started to get a lot more strict on punishment and what they referred to as drunk. And people started to get a little bit more conservative. In fact, around the mid 1500s, there were people who were calling for what was referred to as Sunday closing in England. They wanted people to stop selling alcoholic beverages on Sundays. I found this to be really fascinating because, so I live in St. Augustine and in St. Augustine on Sundays, you cannot purchase alcohol of any kind before noon. You can't get like a Bloody Mary or anything like that. Nope, not until noon. Alcohol will not be sold and that includes liquor stores. You can't purchase alcohol before noon. There are still some places in America where you can't buy alcohol at all on Sunday. In fact, I've even been to places that were dry counties, which, by the way, blew my mind, being a wine lover, that were completely dry, where there was literally no alcohol to be purchased. It was so scary and horrible. America has also had their history with trying to prevent drunken behavior. We had our prohibition that lasted from 1920 to 1933. And they had, of course, the speakeasies where people would sneak in alcohol and everything. When I was visiting my brother in New York City when he was living there, we went to a speakeasy. We went to this really cool speakeasy-like bar. So it was, neat. it was this little hot dog restaurant that was sort of like the face of it. And when you went in, it was like these old school 80s video games. And then there was a phone booth in the corner. Well, you went to the phone booth and you had to press a certain number. And on the other side, it would have somebody would answer the phone, the hostess, and you would ask if there was availability. And if there was, the door would slide open and you would walk in and it was this incredibly plush bar with these red leather seats and mirrors all over the place. It was really, really cool. So anyways, my brother and his wife said that they'd been trying to go there for a while and had never had a chance to finally get in. So I'm so excited that when they did finally get a chance to get in, I was there and I got to be part of it. And the drinks, were all like these crazy prohibition names that I can't remember now because it's too long ago. But it was really, really a super cool, fun place and it was a neat experience. So speaking of America, we had our first beer brewed in 1587 in Virginia and it was actually made from Indian corn. Hey, I'm telling you, they can ferment anything. Germany has a very interesting beer history. They were the first to do a lot of things. They were one of the first ones to use hops in their ale to make beer. They were the first to make laws about the ingredients that went into beer to keep their beer as pure as possible because that is very important. They were the first to have a beer guild, no doubt, to enforce those ingredient lists. And they were the first people to make lager. So the word lager actually comes from the word lagern, which is German to store. In the early 19th century, Bavarian brewers sorted beers into cold cellars for a long time using bottom fermenting yeast. And then it was stored at a very low temperature. They were so hardcore about this that they would even take their beer to the frozen caves in the Alps and pack them with ice. I mean, if that's not dedication to your beer... I don't know what is. Usually this would take a few weeks or a few months and it resulted in a mellow tasting and clear brew. They say that the darker color of the lager is due to the heavy water of that particular region. So now my yingling is a lager and I do prefer lagers. They are very mellow tasting and they are delicious and I will also drink to that. Germany was also the first country to use glass bottles for beer. 
1561. So the interesting thing is in Germany, they do actually prefer to use bottles for a lot of different things. Not only their beer, but also we used to get this drink called Apfelschirle, which is basically like a sparkling apple juice. It's super delicious. They would have the Apfelschirle that would be in there. They would have sparkling water. They would have still water. Anything that you could think of, they would have it in a glass bottle. And the reason that they had the glass bottles, whenever you purchase anything that came in a glass bottle, it costs a little bit more money. You'd usually buy it by the case. It would come like in a little plastic crate and you would have all the bottles that would fit into the little cubby holes. When you were done with drinking your beer or your Apfelschorle or whatever the case may be, you would put the bottle into the crate. And when the crate was completely done, you would bring it back to the store and you would get a deposit back for the bottles that you drank. And then you would get the new one and it would kind of offset some of the cost of that. As far as I know, they've been doing this forever. So it's a great way instead of having to worry about actually recycling their goods, they're reusing them, which is even better. So remember when I was telling you guys that beer that's served at room temperature has a much better taste to it, or at least a much truer taste to it? Well, in Germany, that's how they serve their beer. In addition, a lot of times they'll throw in an orange slice, especially if you get something like a Hefeweizen. But it's interesting. I didn't even know why they put the orange slice in there. I always liked it because I thought it gave it like a fun, fruity kind of feel. But apparently when you use an orange slice in your beer, the citric acid and the oils from the orange help to break down the head, which I probably could have used earlier when I was pouring my beer and got it all super full of head. However, the only problem with putting an orange in your beer, if you are a beer enthusiast, you can actually interrupt the flavor of the beer. So another fun little German thing. Remember when I was telling you how you can order a beer by saying Ein Bier bitte? Well, they actually have a beer brand in Germany called Bit. And so the funny little slogan that they have is Bitte Ein Bit. And so you see it all over Germany on all the little signs and you hear it on all the commercials. Bitte Ein Bit. (laughs) So if you ever go to Germany and you want to try the Bit wine, there you go. The last part of this is I'm going to be discussing cider. Cider was also drank along with ale and beer. The first accounts of this drink were actually in 55 BC when the Romans first arrived to England. Apples were bitter back then, and they were used mainly for cooking, ciders, and for vinegar. Apples back then, it wasn't like the apples of today that are super sweet and crunchy and delicious, and you bite into them, and it's like, oh, this is so refreshing. No, they really were not super good. And so a lot of times, they made for better cooking. And cider. And they were also made by the monasteries, and as with beer, they also were used as currency. Which, by the way, I think that's pretty messed up currency. Like, it's especially during the time of the Egyptians when it was used as like a nutrient. But cider drinking actually peaked during the mid-17th century when farms had presses and their own apple orchards and they would a lot of times make their own ciders. So apples that were too bad for ciders were generally used for making vinegar. So now you know, like me, everything that you never thought that you would know about beer. I think this is actually really interesting. I had a lot of fun doing this research. So now to go on to what I read this week or technically listened to. Although I didn't listen to it this week, I just happened to, when I was researching beer, I remembered having read a historical romance that had some beer in it, and so I thought it would be sort of fun to tie into this episode. Tessa Dares Say Yes to the Marquess, which is book two of her wonderful Castles Ever After series. I love Tessa Dares' books. They're so witty and funny and charming. And Carmen Rose is the narrator for this, and if you have never listened to Carmen Rose on Audible, if you are an Audible listener, man, she is like one of my favorite narrators. She is so good, and 
she just absolutely brought this story to life. Without further ado, say yes to the Marquess. After eight years of waiting for Piers Brandon, the wandering Marquess of Granville, to set a wedding date, Cleo Whitmore has had enough. She's inherited a castle, scraped together some pride, and made plans to break her engagement. Not if Rafe Brandon can help it. A ruthless prizefighter and a notorious rake, Rafe is determined that Cleo will marry his brother, even if he has to plan the dreaded wedding himself. So how does a hardened fighter cure a reluctant bride's cold feet? He starts with flowers. A wedding can't have too many flowers or harps, or cakes. He lets her know she'll make a beautiful, desirable bride, and tries not to picture her as his. He doesn't kiss her. And if he kisses her, he definitely doesn't kiss her again. And when all else fails, he puts her in a stunning gown, and vows not to be nearby when the gown comes off. And no matter what, he doesn't fall in a disastrous, hopeless love with one of the women he could never call his own. Let me just say that the story was hot. (laughs) It was very hot, and it was really, really, really good. I really enjoyed all the banter between them. One of the fun things, too, is that without too many spoilers, Cleo does decide that she wants to open a brewery which I think is awesome. She's kicking it back to the 1300s by wanting to have her own brewery. Good for her. And so you get to learn a little bit about the different components that go into making a really great beer. And again, you know, the steamy romance. So if you haven't read Say Yes to the Marquess, and if you have not listened to anything by Carmen Rose, this is a wonderful start. So I am beyond excited to share that this week, the book that I'm sharing of mine is Marin's Promise. It has not come out this week, but it will be coming out on Tuesday. And I'm so excited because I've been dreaming of this book series for a long time now. I've been pretty much living in this world for about the last year as I've been writing all these books and dreaming up all these characters and the supporting characters. So this is super exciting for me. If you haven't heard my detail from the previous ones, this is basically a story of five sisters who live on the border between Scotland and England, and it's a pretty hard life there. And so even though they are all Earl's daughters and they have been raised as ladies, they have been trained to fight as warriors just to ensure that they can stay safe. So we have some of them that use swords. We have one of them who uses a mace and a battle axe. We have one of them who's great at bow and arrow and another one who likes to fight with two daggers. So uh, I've had so much fun writing this and I hope that everybody enjoys this series as well. So without further ado, what Marin's Promise book one is Lady Marin Barrington, eldest of the Earl of Warwick's five daughters, is a born protector. Not only has she taken on the role of mistress of the castle and caregiver to her sisters upon their mother's death. She also acts in her father's stead while he is serving the king abroad. Dedicated and resolute, failure is never an option for her. So when Reaver forces his way into the castle, Marin won't surrender easily and takes it upon herself to kill the usurper. Except plans go awry when passions are awoken and matters get complicated. Bran Douglas's sister is going to be hanged unless he agrees to take Warwick Castle. Ever upon in a rich man's game, Bran has no choice but to comply. He quickly discovers that getting into the castle is the easy part. Dealing with its mistress, however, will take every ounce of cunning and determination he can muster, especially when she turns his blood to fire. In a game where desperation and love dictate the lives of many, a simple promise can change the tide of favor and open the door to pleasure and danger alike. That is Marin's Promise. That comes out on Tuesday, May 28th. I will put the link in the show notes. And I hope that everybody enjoys the series. I'm super excited about it. So this week's reader question, what are some interesting things that you learned about history in your last book that you wrote? I'll go ahead and mention Marin's Promise since I think I'm writing like three books right now. (laughs) And since I just brought that one up, I figured it'd be easy to just go with that one. One of the really interesting things I discovered when I was doing my research is that, remember when I said that pretty much 
much the only jobs open to women were brewers and the age-old profession. And technically, it's not really true. Oftentimes, if a husband had a certain trade that he was doing, whether he was a tanner or a baker or a blacksmith or a cook, a lot of times his wife would help him with that trade. And when he died, it was not uncommon for a widow to pick up that trade. So for those of you who may have watched A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, if you, gosh, if you haven't watched this movie, you must go out and watch it right, right now because it is so good. If you have watched that movie and you remember the blacksmith being a woman and she was talking about how her husband was dead, she was a widow. Well, it's actually completely true. That's not Hollywood whatsoever. If a blacksmith had died and he was married, his wife could have resumed his practice and nobody would have thought it odd or anything along those lines. So I found that to be very fascinating and I actually use that in Marin's Promise with the cook. When her husband dies, she ends up taking over the job of being cook of the castle and her name is Nan. That's N-A-N. And if you go to MadelineMartin.com on my Borderland Ladies tab, there is Nan's story and you can read a free short little story about Nan and kind of get to know her character a little bit more and it sort of delves into her taking over her husband's job. And my question for readers this week, what are some of your favorite historical facts that you've learned while reading historical romance or historical fiction? You can send us your answer at historybooksandwine at gmail.com as well as any author questions that you may have. Please make sure that you check out our website, that's historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com to hear our podcast and read through the show notes. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and now on Alexa. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Feel free to leave a review if you've enjoyed the show. New episodes are posted every Thursday with the upcoming shows including May 30th, Lori Ann Bailey, who will be discussing whiskey, then June 6th with all of us for happy hour where we talk about the history of wine. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful evening or day, whatever you're drinking. Happy to same. <laughs>